I'm going to read Galatians 3, verse 26, down to verse 7 of chapter 4, focusing on verses 1 to 7. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Grass withers and flowers fade, but God's holy word endures forever. And praise be to God, may he bless it in our midst this morning. One of the things you see as we go through this letter is that Paul, I think, was uh, the inventor of scholastic teaching well before scholasticism became popular in the medieval times. If you don't know what that means, I encourage you to look it up. But there's often said about the Puritans that they did a lot of their writing and their preaching in a scholastic way, meaning that every point and detail was listed, and every point had three points, and every three points had subpoints to it, so that they made sure they covered all the parameters of what they were trying to teach and preach. Well, Paul is very much doing that in this letter. He has been emphasizing the need of the church to get the doctrine of justification right. To hold fast to the one true gospel and to not allow any false gospel, any gospel that did not match the gospel that Christ himself promoted. Uh, to be considered anathema, to be considered wrong. And to be justified, just to define that word again so everyone is clear. To be justified is that very act of God. It's not something that we work for. It's not something that is in itself worked in us. It is God's declarative, declarative act. He says, I now proclaim you justified. Which means God is saying, I now declare all your sins are pardoned. And I accept you as righteous, even though we're sinners. I accept you as righteous for the righteousness of my Son that is now charged to you, that now covers you, that now is imputed to you, 
And the way we receive it is by faith alone. Justification is God's pardoning act and acceptance of us by faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to attain that. And as much as that message is preached, we as sinners, we as fallen creatures, even as Christians, always look to our own goodness, always want to go to the good works that we do, always want to go to that self-righteous corner of our lives and say, well, there was some goodness in me, that's why God loves me. And you know how hard it is to push that thought out. And that's what Paul has been arguing all along. This is the message of Galatians that God wants us as a church to know and to hold fast to. Because it is the cornerstone, not simply of our faith, it's the cornerstone of the church in every generation. It's the gospel. And if we have not the gospel proper we have not the keys of the kingdom to open up the doors for sinners that's how essential it is and here he's bringing in another argument he's already talked about how the law was purposed to sort of be a guardian to keep us in that understanding of what sin is and how sinful we are before God so that when Christ came, our hearts would be opened up to the gospel and realize He's the one who saves me from my sins, not my own goodness and obedience. But now He moves on to, as you can see in verse 3, He moves on to another form of bondage that God placed us under as a guardian to keep us looking for Christ and hoping in Christ. And this one is a bit more difficult to accept and embrace, but he, he opens it up by setting before us something that is very common in our day, but was also common in, in uh, Jesus' day, in Paul's day. And that's that area of, of giving over an inheritance to your children but holding that inheritance until they reached an appointed age where it could be given to them and they would be responsible with it. Paul is using that as an understanding of this bondage that God has placed over us for the appointed time of Christ's coming so that when He came, we would know Him believe Him, and rest in Him. We know this language that Paul uses in in verses 1 and 2 about trust funds for our children. We open up trust funds at times for our children, but we have an appointed time when they can receive that money. Usually it's when they're 21. And, and young people, if you're ever wondering why do mom and dad hold on to money that's designated for you until you're 21, it's a reality that as teenagers, the vast amount of us, and we as parents know this as teenagers, we certainly know how to spend money, but we do not know how to use it wisely. And so there's always a hope that when you turn 21, somehow that light bulb will come on and you will say, I'm going to be responsible with all the money my parents are going to give me. It doesn't always work, does it? (laughs) 
But it's it's not new. This is what Paul is dealing with in his own time, in, in his own day. It was common for parents, for the the father of the household, to hold the inheritance for his son and, and to give it to him at an appointed time in his life. It wasn't given necessarily when they died. But it was often given before they died. That puts a little note on the parable of the prodigal son who asked for his inheritance. What he did, he he didn't ask it because he wasn't willing to wait till his dad died. He asked for it because he wasn't waiting for that appointed time when his father would give it to him. And there you see the classic example of how irresponsible one can be with an inheritance. But in that time... The one who was to inherit was put under a guardianship, under a steward who would train him in all manners and matters necessary to receive the the inheritance and to be responsible with it. Sounds like a good help to us, doesn't it, parents? (laughs) You hand that responsibility over to someone to ensure that your child will do right with their inheritance. And until he was of age to receive that inheritance, as Paul says, he was no different than the steward, the slave who took care of him. He did not have property rights, title deeds, or legal authority, even though he was a master, if you will. He still did not have any more uh, power and authority than the one who was over him. Now Paul is using that to illustrate something more about how God has enslaved the world to understand their need of Christ. And this is going to be perhaps the harder pill to swallow. And he says in verse 3 that what now uh, is also under the power of God, what now enslaves us are the elements of the world. That's a strange phrase, the elements of the world. But that's why we read in Exodus 2, Israel experienced that bondage that God placed them under, the elements of the world, so that they would understand and know their need of deliverance. So that they would understand and know the incapableness that was over them of being able to deliver themselves. Even more, that they would understand the magnitude of God's grace to them in bringing them deliverance. It was God. Let's not forget this. It was God who placed Israel under the bondage of the Egyptians. Four centuries earlier, he had said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land. Isn't that what Moses called his first son? Gershom. I've been a stranger in this land. Know that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. God was doing that. 
Now that's hard to swallow, isn't it? And we read in Exodus how hard that bondage was. We read in Exodus that, that, that the Pharaoh saw that they were becoming a great nation and he wanted to put a stop to it, so he began to attack the children. And, and when they wanted to be released, Pharaoh made their enslavement even more bitter. They were under taskmasters. Moses comes along and he sees the brutality of that and he acts out thinking he's going to gain the favor of his people. But they're so embittered by their enslavement, they look at him with scorn and contempt. But we read in Exodus 2 at the end, verse 23, how their cries reached God. And God would say in, in the next chapter, I hear the cry of my people. Do you think Israel regarded themselves as God's people under that enslavement? Probably not. They'd probably be like most of us wondering, what in the world is God doing to us? How many times have you ever heard someone say when their life was filled with so much hardship and and some of it just even violent? Or they've endured something that is just incomprehensible even to our fallen minds to embrace and to say, why would God let this happen? If I am particularly a Christian, why has God allowed such evil to fall in our lap? How do you answer that? God heard the cry of Israel and it moved God as we read in In Exodus 2.24, it moved God to remember His promise. It moved Him to raise up that deliverer, Moses, who would be the only man in all of Scripture who would be the fullest example of the greater deliverer, Jesus Christ. There is no other man who occupied the offices of Christ except for Moses. He was the great antitype of Christ the original. And God raised up this deliverer for the sake of His people. And and we ask, why would God work in this way? Why? In confession, we don't know the ways of God. His ways are always higher than ours. His thoughts beyond ours. No one counsels God for his will. Paul makes that statement at the end of Romans 11. Who has been his counselor? Who has said to God, you should be doing it this way? Paul brings out this point in verse 3 when he says, When we, even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of this world. What's he talking about there? how we all, in fact, find ourselves in the bondage of affliction, of sorrow, of suffering, of pains, of evils, and some more than others, but it is the bondage of the elements of this world that fall upon us. And it holds us. 
And for some people it makes them even more bitter to God, toward God. But for most of us it just makes us despair of life. Why does God work in such a way? I, I want to just very quickly set before you at least three points that we know God works in this way with purpose. But it is fair to say this, before we look at that, is to realize that is God's judgment on the world. The world is in rebellion to Him. Mankind as a whole are born as children of wrath because we in our hearts We share in Adam's original sin. We are rebellious against God and His ways. We are sinners who do not deserve anything in life. And you see, that's the first part of self-righteousness that needs to be conquered in the heart of man for Christ to seem all-glorious. Because we all feel that measure, I deserve better. When in fact, if God was truly being just, let alone fair, if He was being just in all His ways, this world wouldn't be. He hasn't worked that way. He has worked to bring salvation to His people. And that's what He's about here. And God did this to Israel First, for the purpose of establishing Himself as their deliverer. Israel, could you deliver yourself from that bondage? No. But with an outstretched arm. What did God say in Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Israel, do you see what I have done for you? And you know, for most of us as believers, until we get into that place where we see how much the elements of this world hold us in bondage, in sin, in despair, etc., etc., the glory of Christ will look insignificant. We'll always be thinking, how can I make my life better? Without realizing what is the end of this life here on earth. Death. That's it. God has sent His deliverer, Christ, to bring us out of it. But it's also to show Israel who they became. God would say to Israel in in Exodus 19, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. You will see how I have made you My special treasure to be to Me above all people. All the earth is Mine. But I have made you a kingdom of priests and holy nations to me. Do you see what God has done in your life as a wretched sinner? Only in Christ are you transformed to be what? Child of God. Do you think you have that capacity of yourself to make that happen? The answer is no. 
It's God saying to Israel, do you know who I have made you? The third thing that we do know again from Scripture is that God wanted this to be the foundation of heart-motivated worship to Him. Not our own goodness. God, aren't I such a nice guy? I don't understand why you're not a little kinder to me. The heart devotion that He wants from His people. Deuteronomy 16, as they were about to go in and receive their inheritance, God says to them, Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. You know what I did for you. So be careful to serve and observe the statutes I give you. And it always goes back what God has done. But the question is this. Israel at that time was in bondage to the elements of the world. They were delivered. But what happened? They got their inheritance and like the prodigal they ran with it. Say, oh, well, God's done this for us. I don't have to worry. Let's just go live life in this new land and be like the nations around us. In fact, even going towards that inheritance, how much guardianship and stewardship they needed to learn the manners of of receiving their inheritance. How many times did they say, oh, God, this is too hard. I wish we were back in Egypt. How many times did they say that? Because they couldn't keep before their eyes the wonder and the glory of the deliverance that God had accomplished for them. They spurned who they were and they spurned their inheritance. Now, let's come back to Galatians 4 and let's consider this. Let me ask you this question. Why does the Father love you? Now, you don't give answers, but think on that for a second. Why does the Father love you? And for most of us as Christians, I do believe that what first goes through our minds is we're tempted to say, because I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of my sins. If you began there, you began in the wrong place. Because we are told in Ephesians 1.4 that the Father loved you from before that moment in time. He did not start loving you when you believed in His Son. That, my friends, is the fruit of His love. Isn't that more amazing to think? And I'm not being semantical or mystical with words here. God loved us. And and that's what Paul is getting at. God even said that to Israel. I did not, Deuteronomy 7, I did not set my love upon you because you were a great people. You weren't. (laughs) You weren't a great people. I set my love upon you because I wanted to love you. And that's why I sent a deliverer. That's why I redeemed you out of your bondage. That's why I made you my people. And now you see why Paul is making that connection here. Because it comes back to this again. Why were you justified? 
Was it because God looked and said, Oh, this is someone I can see. If they just understand Christ, they'll believe in Him. No problem. So I'll love Him. Is that why God loved you? And we're looking into that corner of self-righteousness and saying, It's because I'm good. And you know what happens? And this is the problem. This is the problem with Israel. It's a hard journey. We're still under the elements of those worlds, but we're not in bondage to them anymore. We know we're all going to suffer. We know we're all going to face afflictions. We know we're all going to die. And sometimes it may be a horrible death. We pray for a very smooth, quick death. But we know not the will of God in those things, do we? I've read of a church in, uh, in North Carolina that is, was mourning. I think it was North Carolina. I can't even remember. Anyways, in the South. was mourning the death of one of the church members' wives who was murdered. But was she under the bondage of the elements of this world if she was in Christ? The answer is no. She wasn't. Doesn't mean she was not liable to those afflictions and sufferings and hardships and evils. She had been delivered from them in Christ. Because what has Christ said to us? Your assurance of the Father's love, your assurance of your salvation rests in me. I have delivered you. How do you know you're a son or daughter of God? That's Paul's issue here. How do you know that you have an inheritance of eternal life waiting for you? Verse 7. You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. How do you know that? And again, we're tempted to point to our faith and our repentance or we're tempted to point to our knowledge of doctrine and our performance and our obedience to God's law, not aware that while those are all necessary parts of Christian growth, they're not the foundation of our salvation. Christ is. And if we are pointing to those things as a confirmation of our inheritance of eternal life and our sonship in Christ, you're going to bring enslavement to yourself because all those things can say to you, you want assurance, you want confidence and hope, believe harder. Your faith isn't enough. Make it stronger. Repent more. Oh, you don't know enough. You, you've got to study these doctrines better. You've got to perform better. No, you're not obeying enough. You see, that, that's the problem when we look to something else other than Christ, is that it, we, we set ourselves under enslavement. We're just like Israel that says, oh, I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> At least I could see my performance and have a little confidence in something that my eyes can show me. But it has to be in Christ. And this is where the Father points us. His love was before the foundation of the world. But if you want to know that the Father loves you, where do you look? And He tells us in verse 4. 
I sent my son. Paul even says it better in Romans 5, if I can put it that way. But Romans is is the expansion of this letter of Galatians. And in Romans 5, God makes the point of declaring to us, do you know how much I have loved you? While you were ungodly, while you were sinners, while you were enemies of me, I sent my son. Isn't that amazing? God sent forth his son. And he did it in the fullness of time. That's a phrase that people wonder, what does it mean in the fullness of time? Some want to point to the time of Rome and the peace that was established under their kingdomship. That's not what it is. Go to Daniel 2. God had already set the time when his kingdom would explode upon the earth. It was during the time of the Roman Empire. When you read Galatians 2, I mean, sorry, uh, Daniel 2, you'll see it there. But God says, when you see this nation, my son is coming and he is coming to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Had nothing to do with with whatever earthly kingdom may have made it more uh, receivable or acceptable. It was the time for God's kingdom to come. It was the time when Israel's enslavement under the Gentiles was complete. It was the time when the ceremonial laws and rites and statutes and temples and priests and whatnot of Israel's history had run their course. God was now prepared to pour out immeasurable grace upon the nations and He sent forth His Son to fulfill the law for us. He sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman. You talk about a plan that no one could conceive. God did not come down in all of His regal glory and full omnipotent power to vanquish the nations and establish His kingdom. No, He sent His Son who was very God, who humbled Himself and took the form and nature of man to qualify as one with those whom He came to redeem. He was born under the law. This was the condition of His coming. Born under the law. We all together failed to obey everything concerning God's law. None of us here has any right to say, God, I am righteous in and of myself. Because we have broken every aspect of God's holy law. Christ didn't. He was born under that law with the purpose of fulfilling and obeying every matter of God's law, from the circumcision to the Passovers, to the whole sacrificial system, to everything, to the point of even receiving the death penalty as a lawbreaker, even though he did not break that law. Even though there was no sin in him. He was born under the law with the purpose 
of bearing the curse of the law in our place. That's the amazing thing here. As Paul says, God sent forth His Son. He not only kept the whole law for His people, He suffered the punishment that was due for our lawlessness. And He did this, as you read there in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. The point that's being made here, that's being impressed upon us about Christ is that His death was not simply a rescue. It was emancipation. It was the release of a slave from bondage by paying the price of their freedom. And this brings us back to those elements of the world. My friends, why do we suffer? Because we are sinners. We don't deserve an affliction-free life. If you have had a life where you have been very much spared of a lot of suffering and affliction, you've had a blessed life, but not a deserved life. Every sin before God deserves death. That is His justice. The only way that we are set free is for that price to be paid. Christ is the only one who has paid that debt. Please don't be tired of hearing this. That is the reason why hell is eternal punishment. Even the sinner suffering in hell for an eternity has still not paid the penalty for their sins. And that's where we look and we see Christ and we say, God sent His Son to pay the debt of my sin. And He has paid it in full. And now God can say, I pardon all your sins. I accept you as righteous. Praise God. You see what Paul is saying? And not only that, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. As if Christ wasn't enough. We get the other person of the Trinity who now comes and abides within us and who accomplishes, if you will, that adoption as children of God. And this is what Christ wanted for us. Do you know that one of the first things that Jesus said after He rose from the dead and as Mary was clinging to His legs and saying, Christ, you're still you're alive again. You've come back. I don't want to let you go. And he, He's saying to her, No, no, I need to go. But I want you to go to my brethren and say to them, listen to these words, say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. You see what Christ was saying there? He says, I want all of my disciples to know and enjoy the experiences I have as the Son of God. One who was love. 
from eternity. And one in whom the fullness of God was. And so God sent forth the Spirit of His Son in verse 6 to work in your heart. To move you away from that inclination towards bondage. To remove from you that fear of what you must do to be saved. There is nothing you can do to be saved. You know how many times in Scripture Jesus was asked that? Even the apostles were asked that question. What must I do to be saved? You can't do anything. (laughs) But it has been done for you by Jesus. And the Spirit comes into our heart to work that truth deep within our soul and to remove the fear and to bring forth that assuring grace that by faith in Christ, I am a redeemed child of God. Nothing less than a child of God. And whenever your heart begins to doubt that, What does the Spirit of God do in in verse 6? The Spirit of God resounds in your heart. Cry out, Abba, Father. You're His child. Let Him know. (laughs) Every time you pray. That's that's why it's important in our prayers not to just simply say, uh, Dear God. What was Jesus' emphasis? When you pray, say what? Our Father in heaven. One commentator said, Every time you say Father, it is as if the voice of the Spirit of Jesus was on your lips as God's children. Know this communion you have with Him. And when you begin to doubt, the Spirit will awaken in your heart. Cry out, I'm confirming in your soul, you're His son, you're His daughter. Isn't that amazing? I remember a time, it was quite a while ago when my kids were younger, but it was always a common thing that whenever a child wanted something, they'd always come up and say, Dad, will you get this for me? And every now and then, uh, you know, without, we always get into those discussions of costs and finances and get a job and those sort of things. But I remember asking every now and then, why do you always come to me when you want something? And you know what the response was? Because you're my dad. And and you stop and you think here what, what God is saying to you. Come to me. What Jesus says. Ask me anything. I'll do it. For the Father's sake. For His glory, I'll do it. God the Father wants you to know you're His child. Your self righteous obedience does not prove you are His child. We have to get over that. Your sonship rests in the redemption that the Father has provided for you in His Son. And His Spirit is in you to make you aware of that grand truth every day. Thank God. (laughs) That's where our hope rests. We have been set free from the elements of this world through Christ and Him alone. Believe on Him. My friends, if any of you are here today 
and you do not know what it means to be a child of God, seek one of us out. We'll sit down and talk with you and, and, and show you Christ in all of His glory. But believing on Christ is the way we receive such glory and such inheritance through Christ and Him alone. Let us pray.